you go to school for physics, you get a master's in physics and become a successful comic book writer. How is that done? We talk about that today. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Get Over It podcast. I am your host, Dr. Christopher Fasano. Before we begin with our guest today, I want to remind everybody to check out the previous episodes. You could go right to your favorite pod player, you know, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. If you subscribe, the episode will come right to your phone, so you don't have to go searching for when a new episode comes out. We're also available on YouTube, so you can watch this interview. If you prefer, like me, to actually see the humans here talking, you can go on YouTube, you can subscribe. You can also check out uh, them there. And be sure to make, go to Apple Podcasts, leave a review, leave a five-star review. It'll help the show uh, get up in the rankings. It'll make more people uh, see this show so we can help more people get over it. Right, everybody? So today, our guest is Matt Hawkins. Matt is the president and COO of Top Cow Productions. It's a really awesome, um, super creative company. It's something where, you know, I'm not that guy. I've always been fascinated when I was younger with comics, but I sort of, um, what I want to talk to him about too, is I sort of went askew from it. Like I sort of left it for a while and I have a kid now and I'm sort of coming back to that world. So it's kind of fun here. So we're going to talk to Matt today. Matt, welcome to the Get Over It podcast. Thanks for having me. All right, so let's do this. So let's get everybody in the same context. So why don't you tell us a little bit about Top Cow? You know what 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 it is, what the production company is, what it does, um, and then we'll kind of we'll, we'll kind of take it from there and take you on your journey up to where how you got there. Yeah, we're actually celebrating our 30th anniversary this year. So Top Cow was founded in 1992 by uh, Mark Silvestri, one of six artists who all left Marvel Comics together to form a company called Image Comics. Uh, it was uh, Rob Liefeld, Todd McFarlane, Mark Silvestri, Jim Lee. Uh, Eric Larson and Jim Valentino, um, they all left together and created a new company uh, and, and basically to fight for creator rights. They wanted to own their own content and they wanted to own and control the uh, the characters and their creations. Um, and uh, I started working with Rob Liefeld in April of 1993, uh, started working with Mark Silvestri in uh, April actually of 1998, and I've been with Top Cow ever since. So uh, I'm almost to 25 years at Top Cow and celebrating my 29th year in the industry. So tell, tell me a little bit about, you know, fighting for your creative rights. This is like a, this is a thing in all aspects of creative, uh, in the creative world, um, music, writing, art, anything like that. Someone produces. And like most, like this is a show, I have another podcast, it's creative, it's mine, and I want to be able to own the license of where I go with that show, right? So how how is that? So when you're a part of a big company, right, they own the rights of everything. So if you're coming up with ideas, is that negotiated? Tell me a little about the business of how that works. Well, the way it worked in the old days is different now because of what they did. And uh, it's a lot better now for creators. Um, it's still not fantastic. I mean, guys like Rob Liefeld created Deadpool. You know, mm -hmm. uh, guys like Mark Silvestri created Mr. Sinister and some of the X-Men. Um, and so these guys created these characters that would get turned into these multi-billion dollar franchises. And they would participate in some of the revenue, but they didn't have any control. They didn't have any say in what the characters did. And they wanted to participate in the longer terms. And there was guys like Todd McFarlane who wanted to make toys and do this other stuff. So uh, the brilliance of these guys is they all left together. They were the top artists at Marvel Comics wow. in 1991, 1992. They banded together. They all left together and they formed a new company that quickly became the third largest uh, comic book company in the United States in North America. Um, and uh, like I said, we're celebrating our 30th year and I've been with Top Cow for, for 25 almost, uh, but with Image and image-related companies for 29 years. So it's been my, my whole career. I got recruited almost directly out of college and uh, it's all I've done. I've never had another job. So top, so what is the business relationship between Image and Top Cow? Is it a parent? Is it, how is that 
structured? Uh, Image Comics is uh, no, it, it's a it's a company that's owned by the six founders, um, okay. but it's not uh, the company Image Comics itself doesn't actually own anything. Okay. Uh, the individual studios like Todd McFarlane Productions, Top Cow for Mark Silvestri. I see. I see. Uh, they are the companies that own the properties and control the rights and and do these various things. Image Comics is a is kind of a, a it's where they they banded together for distribution and printing and I see. and uh, and now there is a guy named Eric Stevenson who runs Image Central and has been doing so for a very long time. He does a fantastic job and Image publishes a lot of titles. Uh, for independent creators that uh, that they also are able to maintain and create their rights. That's where Robert Kirkman came from with The Walking Dead. Uh, the Walking Dead was a uh, image title that uh, was published. To, no one knew what it was. Uh, it very quickly blew up into a huge success in the comic book world and then later into the TV world. I don't. A lot of people may not realize that it was a comic book first. It was also a tremendously successful comic book. Mm. And then uh, Robert turned it into, uh, you know, worked with them, turned it into a TV show. And now Robert, uh, with his success, has become one of the partners of Image. I see. Okay. So, but Top Top Cow is not just comics, correct? The production it doesn't. It's not just comics. Well, that's primarily what we do. Okay. Um, we create comic books and graphic novels that are then uh, filtered out. We license them out in, into film and television, video games. We've had a number of uh, films and TV shows and video games that have been based on our properties, but we don't actually make those things. I see. We're, I see. Mark and I will produce those things. We'll attach as writers or producers or creators, and we work with the creatives. Okay. But uh, we we don't make you know, movies or TV shows, which is, which is how it's been. I mean, a lot of that's how that works. Comics lead to other sorts of product, like other sorts of medias, right? Like, I feel like that's the way a lot of this goes. I want to understand, you know, your journey, like how you, how you got to where you are, were, what were you like as, you know, as a, as a younger kid, were you into comics? Did they always, were you always creative? Did you like it? Like, like, I always like to know like, yeah, man, I was into it forever or not. I never like, what what was your deal in relation to where you are now? Well, this is a question I get asked uh, all the time. I imagine, yeah. Generally hate my answer because uh, I did not read comics when I was a kid. I was not into them at all. And uh, really, I uh, sort of uh, met Rob Liefeld uh, in 1993, and he took a fly chance on hiring me. And uh, I've just been in the. I was still. But what um, were you doing at that point? Like, what was your background? Did you go to school for art? I was at. I was in UCLA. I was in the physics program. Really? Yeah. Physics. I have a master's degree in physics uh, that I use for absolutely nothing. Well, um, but I've I, well, been well, writing comics for 25 years. Let me, I'll say this, Matt. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a neuroscientist doing marketing. Um, oh, cool. Physics. <laughs> I've always said, so like, this is funny. So like the only course I've ever dropped in my life has, was, was a physics class. Um, I think it was like third, third year physics. I dropped it. Cause I was like, what the, you know, what am I gonna do with this? It's like not, you know, like it's great. The, you know, that one, two, I'll take it. Then I get into like three. I'm like, this is crazy. And I always said, it takes a mind for physics. There are right. certain things like biological sciences are a little more tangible physics is a little more, you know, it's, you, it's, you have, it's out there kind of, you have to be able to conceptualize. So I could see how a, phys- a physicist's mind can be beneficial in comics in creating worlds and things right. that might not be of, you know, are terrestrial, but also a little extraterrestrial and, and trying to use that. So I could, I could, I think I could draw a line there. Do you feel like sometimes when you're creating and you're thinking and you're writing, you're, you're tapping into some of that in your mind? 
Uh, when I do science fiction, absolutely. And I think one of the benefits I've had as a writer is I can read the science journals and the science journals are full of mm -hmm. uh, great creative ideas that n no one else can understand or read. So I, I pilfer from there on a regular basis. So, you know, I read, I read nature and, and several of the American physical papers and a few things. And uh, every once in a while, you'll read a line or two that's just like, holy shit, yeah, that's right. really cool. That's and then really I'll cool. create an entire story and create characters about it. Um, I actually credit my ability to write to playing Dungeons and Dragons for 30 years. I, I've run the same uh, group through a, a variety of uh, campaigns that I've run for over 33 decades. And uh, creating those worlds and those characters and, and all that uh, sort of gave me a basis on uh, how to write and how to develop and how to create uh, stories and narratives and structures. And uh, you learn by doing. I mean, the first I have a hard time reading the first several books I've, I wrote because I now do not like them. Right. Because you look so. back and you're like a, a young you. <laughs> yeah. It's just, yeah. It's yeah. like, wow, I know where I am now. And that's what well, I can't believe that was me then. One of the things that always has fascinated with me uh, about creatives and people that can create worlds and create characters and create like these things is, um, you know, I, I use the example of um, like George Martin, like Game of Thrones, right? Like everyone was into that. It became very popular. And I remember I read the books and I'm not big into like, you know, sci-fi or anything like that, but I read the books and I remember thinking to myself, how does one create a world? How does one create this vast, I mean, that's an extreme because it's so vast, but any sort of bunch of characters that live and exist in a setting outside of the normal world and reality, Right. How do you approach that? Like, do you create characters first? Do you have a concept? Is it different? Or do you have like a process in which you, which you go with that? I've always wondered that. Well, well for me, the, the process is always, uh, I sort of create the laws of the world first, uh, try to do it as a top-down kind of thing. And then I go in and try to figure out the characters that are interesting and compelling and uh, focus more on them. I, I sort of subscribe to what Stephen King calls the iceberg method of writing, where the writer knows 100%, but you only show the reader ever 10%. And the best example I can use hmm. is uh, I'm a Star Trek nerd. Okay. I've been my whole life. Um, you may not know this by talking to me unless I tell you, but if I signed off and I said, Hey, live long and prosper, mm -hmm. that tells you something about me. It's just a little affectation. That's an interesting character bit that tells you something about me that you may not know. And I think those are the kind of things that make characters endearing. And uh, one of the things I've done my entire career is I literally make Dungeons and Dragons character sheets for every one of my characters I create, because those character sheets, sheets have you know backgrounds history you know parents all it sort of forces you to sort of flesh out what all these characters are who they are and uh, you know and live it the, the biggest problem people have in comics and world building is they spend too much and they focus too much energy on the world building and and they don't focus enough on the characters and uh, this is where you you see like a great world and, and some fascinating thing and uh, the characters seem kind of lost in the storyline. Mm -hmm. I, I use Independence Day as a frequent example of this. Mm -hmm. You know, the movie has this spectacle and all these sort of things, but there's a bunch of characters you don't give a shit about. Right. You know, and right. there's a lot of that in, you know, Michael Bay films, which are fun things to watch and spectacles, but uh, they're not very character pieces. And a lot in a lot of cases, uh, you can't even remember 10 years later who the characters were or why you cared. Um, but if you look at in almost every uh, piece of fiction that people gravitate to, there's usually some sort of wish fulfillment or characters in there that they identify with or they want to be or um, they, they sort of buy into their success. You know, you look at Luke Skywalker and Harry yeah. Potter, they have the same hero's yeah. journey, it's yeah. the same story. Yeah, I think you know? yeah, people want to relate to a character. I mean, like I think, that, like you said, like the world has this fascinating allure, of course, right? It's this, it's this entity, it's this thing. But – as I guess, as humans, as you know, 
animals, we gravitate towards the character and want to understand the character. And if the character just seems out of floating around in this vast thing, you lose that connection a bit. So that that's interesting. So you create like you create their whole life pretty much is what you're saying. Yeah. Like from from soup to nuts, where they began, how they progressed, you know, just like a normal. And then that I imagine helps you then do everything you need to do in that story because you now know exactly who you're dealing with, right? Yeah, you need to know who your character cares about, who do they love, what do they love, why do they love, and what do they hate, and why do they hate. You need to know these things. And the problem is, is most people, when they write, they don't. They kind of make it up on the fly. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty apparent as a writer when you go back and you look at stuff and you realize, oh, these things are changing. Oh, suddenly Leia is Luke's, uh, you know, brother. You know, suddenly, uh, mm -hmm. you know, these things that sort of get made up or added after the fact are, are really obvious, you know, and uh, people get really lost. That's the number one thing I, I criticize uh, young writers about, not criticize, I, I try to help them and teach them is that, uh, and I've mentored quite a few, is that you need to focus on the characters because if you have a world that doesn't make sense, people are very forgiving of that. I can point to you to hundreds of films and TV shows and 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 fiction that the, story, the, the worlds make no sense whatsoever. But if there's a cool character in there that the person likes, they identify with, that they're rooting for, that stuff right. is all forgivable. That right. stuff all forgivable. Yep. I, I totally agree with that. People want to, it's just like, uh, I think it's just like anything in life. You root for the person or an individual or a character. It, it, it really pulls you there. I mean, when I, when I think of, now this is just me, when I think of comics, you know, there's a storyline you're, you're reading, but there's imagery, right? Very, it's colorful. It's different. It's, it's, there's something about, I'm, that's what I remember drew me to comics. I remember, you know, I was big into like Punisher and these things back in the day. And I just remember him and I remember the images and I remember that. And it was like really cool to me and exciting. And I remember right. flipping through and being drawn to the imagery and of course reading, but the really, so where does that fit into the process of creation? Like, you know, you're, 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 when you're writing that list for characters, right? And you're defining who they are. Are you defining their attributes or what they look like? Or does that come after? Where does the imagery come in in a comic? Because I imagine that's a lot of that comic. Well, comic books, uh, people give, I think, writers too much credit in comics. And I'm saying that as a writer. I, I think the artists are actually the more important component to comic books. And like I said, I can't draw. And I am a writer. So I'm giving more credit to the other person in the <laughs> marriage that puts these books out. Um, and Mark Silvestri is an artist and, and a writer. And, uh, you know, one of the things I really like about Top Cow is it's probably the only, I think it's the only U.S. comic book company that's owned and controlled by two comic book creators. You know, I mean, oh, every okay. other one is, is we, we, Mark's a artist and writer. I'm a writer. And, uh, we, we create and uh, sort of straddle that business and creative side at the same time. But uh, the visual component is, is everything because um, otherwise, if I'm just a writer and I want to control what I'm writing, I should just write prose because uh, right. novels are the one thing that a writer has complete control over. You know, if you have a film, there's hundreds of people involved in the vision of it. A comic book is, uh, is sort of a marriage between the writer and the artist. And uh, so when I write scripts and when I develop things out, um, I am usually initially writing that only for one person. That's the artist. I, I, uh, I write these things very specifically and then I send it over and I work with the artist and then they start doing sketches and designs and start sending me stuff. And then and, and in most cases and very rarely have I created something that did not change once the artist came into the picture. You know, I've had characters. I was going to ask that. Gender. Like, does that yeah. does that happen where you're like and then they're like, no, nah, I can't do that. Like, you know, like what is the what is the back and forth like? Uh, it depends on who you're working with. Like for me, I've worked with the same few artists uh, for decades 
okay. now. And uh, we have a shorthand and we work well. And, uh, you know, I've taken care of these people and uh, I'm their livelihood sometimes for decades. And uh, but, you know, because of that, they're they're able to tell me their real opinions. Uh, sometimes when you work with artists you haven't worked before, and especially if they're younger or they're foreign, like there's a lot of artists and comics that are not in the United States. And uh, they tend to do exactly what you say. And uh, I don't like that. I, I, I sort of like the uh, collaboration. And uh, the people I collaborate with, like Rasan Ekadal on Think Tank and the Tithe and a number of projects, Yishin Li, a Chinese artist out of Beijing, who I work with on Swing and all the romance stuff I do, uh, Linda Sedgik and Stepan Sedgik. They're Croatian artists. And, uh, you know, we have a strong back and forth and I talk to them all the time and, and development changes. And in many cases, I'll write stuff and send it and uh, they'll tell me they don't like it for this, that, or the other reason, mm -hmm. and it becomes uh, it becomes a collaboration. So, so there is there is a little, I guess, in your scenario, in your situation, there is a little bit of that. It's not just that you're saying, "Here's what it is. Here's what I want." And I want you to do it. And then there's really no back because I imagine like a good relationship in in a world like this would really benefit from a little bit of creative license, right? A little bit of that, like, let me. What about that? Can I? Can we do that? And of course you're writing and I imagine you would say, well, I don't really want to take it too far. Or maybe you, maybe you have a relationship now where you're like, great, let's, let's run with it. Right. Cause like you said, you know, that that imagery really, really makes a difference. Every situation is different. I mean, it depends also if it's a, it's a work make for hire project, meaning like we're doing a license book, like say I'm doing an adaptation of a video game that Top Cow didn't create. Someone's paying for us to write it. That's a very different situation than one of my creator owned projects where I'm creating something from whole cloth, adding the writer in, and I share the rights with my artists. So uh, whenever I'm working with an artist, they share ownership with me. And uh, so they, they buy in and uh, they, they, stay attached. And of course, I'm going to listen to these people that I've that's worked not with always the case, Matt. Is that not always the case? Where no, not at all. No. Okay. All right. So that's not like a standard thing where no, like, it's not standard. Okay. It's not standard in the industry at all. All right. Okay. Um, I was wondering, do, can anything turn, can anything become a comic? In other words, if you're a writer and you're writing something, obviously there's certain things that are being written purely to read, but you know, I always find like the illustrations always help bring things, bring things to life and bring, make, you know, come alive when you're writing a comic or if I'm a writer and I'm listening to you right now and I'm like, wow, I, I would love to get into writing a comic. Is it a, is it a, what is the switch is there or is it not? Can anything sort of be moved in that direction or is it, does it take a specific type of writer to be really writing a comic? I think 20 years ago, it was very pigeonholed into uh, our uh, superheroes. Um, I personally don't write superheroes because I don't particularly like them. And uh, it's not a knock on them, but uh, they're sort of modern day mythology, sort of written, written for male power fantasies and younger men. Uh, that's sort of changed with the uh, films and the television shows. But uh, if you look at the books I write, they're mostly about real people, scientists, preachers. You know, uh, the most successful book I'm writing right now is about an ethically non-monogamous couple. <laughs> a romance book written for women. That's that book's published in 27 languages, 57 countries around the world. It's my most successful book, read primarily by middle-aged women. You know, wow. and uh, that uh, blows my mind that I'm even writing that. But wow. uh, I'm mainly a Where science fiction writer. Where did that come writer. from, by the way? Where did that come? From? Um, like you the, just sit the, there one, the one artists, day and you're like, "Wow, this is interesting. Let me uh, let me explore this." No, uh, one of the artists <laughs> I work with is named Stepan Sedgik. He did a book called Sunstone, which was about two women who got into a gay uh, S&M relationship with each other. Okay. And uh, he did it as a free comic online, just as a lark. He mainly did, he did another book with me, which was a heavy science fiction book that we did together for years and years and years. And he did this other book kind of 
just a, he called it a palate cleanser. And then uh, he put it up on DeviantArt for free. Suddenly it got millions and millions of page views. And uh, we took a chance and put it out uh, in print. I was very concerned because it had uh, actual sexual content and stuff like that in it. And it was very adult. It was a mature title. Um, and we were very concerned about putting it out and thought that it might be the one and only thing we did. And it very quickly became one of Top Cow's best-selling books of wow. all time. See that? And so because of that, uh, we created an entire category. And I took a shot writing one on my own. And uh, I created this book about this couple that uh, got married when they were very young because the girl got knocked up in college. They got married, had a family. They're like in their 30s. And she's never had sex with anyone but him. And he's only had sex with two or three girls. So they, they feel like they've missed out when they're talking to their friends who've, uh, you know, who've been yeah, out like there doing out all there. kinds yeah, of stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, they get into swinging and the adventure is away. The fifth volume comes out uh, next week. So how do you, I, I, I mean, not to get too personal, but I don't know if you're into that world and swinging world, but like if you're not, or if you are, how do you get into that? You have to, I imagine you have to understand the world to write about it, right? So is it just research or you, you it's know? It's all research. It's just research. Yeah. I mean, you can research anything. You're I mean, learning. I, I researched yeah. Think Tank. Uh, my dad was an engineer for the military for 30 years. And, uh, you know, so I learned a very specific way to research and understand projects. And uh, to be honest, the research for that project was kind of fun. I imagine so. I imagine you learned about a lot of things. Well, I mean, you're 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 a scientist by training, so research and like reading. For everybody that doesn't know, Nature is arguably one of the most respected, if not the most respected, scientific peer-reviewed journal out there. Um, it's a very difficult to get a, a pub. When I was publishing, I think it was almost a one percent publish rate in Nature. I've tried and been rejected numerous times to get published. You know, so and it's very physics-heavy, by the way. Um, so you have that analytical mind to go in and do the research. I imagine that has to have, give you a leg up when you're trying to create something, right? Because the more you're able to analyze and digest, that's the more fodder for you to use, right? Yeah. And I, I do a deep dive. And in many cases, the research I do on projects takes years. You know, I did a book called The Clock a few years ago, which was about the weaponization of cancer. And, uh, and I spent uh, four or five years researching it, uh, interviewed several immunotherapists and actually brought a couple of people on board to be sort of... Uh, that would edit me and look at this and make sure it was authentic. And in back of books like that, which I do the heavy research, I include what I call a science class, which explains the research where they can go to see that this is actually legitimate. And the idea of the weaponization of cancer might seem absurd, but it's very plausible, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. probable, mm -hmm. and it could have already happened. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and I explain all that and show, show how it works. And, and I do the same thing with uh, swing. There's a thing in the back called sex ed. And I write about the pros and cons of swinging, ethical non-monogamy, and the various books that are involved. And uh, it took me a long time to learn how to write romance because uh, I, I was very bad at it for a while. And so I think the first volume of Swing is actually the 14th draft of that script wow. I wrote. And I kept bouncing it around because the Sedgicks, who were sort of the masters of that romance genre and had built this huge international following – um, I kept sending them the book, and uh, there was one day when Stepan, he, uh, he emails me and says, Matt, you're just not getting it. You know, I need you to go watch the first 10 minutes of the movie Up five times in a row <laughs> and then come back and talk to me. That's and, great. Uh, or something like He said something like that. Now, if you remember the beginning of that yep, movie, I do. there was actually a, uh, you know, there's a whole sequence um, where they, they come in and uh, they, they, that guy's the whole family life and his wife dies. And it's just a, such this touching, endearing storyline that uh, – that that happens. So when I finally got into it on that, and I finally figured all that out, um, I was able to uh, go back and I rewrote the script and delivered it, and it worked out fairly well. 
All right. So you said that your dad was in the military for, I think, engineer for 30 years, yeah. right? So yeah. I imagine then you're bouncing around all over the place. Tell me what about that. Well, I think what they call it a brat. Is that what they call it? Is that, is that yeah, a military brat? Yeah. yeah. My dad was Air Force. Okay. Uh, I was born on a military base in Minot, North Dakota, 10 foot snowdrift. I lived there for two months. Um, and uh, then we moved to Cheyenne, Wyoming, uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base, uh, Whiteman Air Force Base. I mean, we moved every two, two and a half years, which as a child completely sucks. Yeah. And so, yep. Uh, when I got married and had a couple of kids, I bought a place in Culver City here in Los Angeles, and I still live there. And uh, my two sons have lived uh, in, in – they were born in Santa Monica and went to the Culver City School District their entire – So you were like, school. we're not doing this. You're not, yeah. we're not no, going it, anywhere. Yeah. It really sucked as a kid. Yeah. And because uh, you don't have any – I don't have any friends pre-college. Yep. I, you know Any. why? You know why? I know because so so I so I host a mental health podcast for kids and parents on you know, on another on another another side, and I get frequently I get military moms, military families reach out reach out to me, and mental health you know among in their kids they're so concerned with their kids because they're constantly being pulled and they don't have any you know when you're a kid you want to have some sort of reference and ground and when you're bouncing like you never know it's it's always and you can't form so relationships so um whenever i get a chance to talk to someone i want to know like is that a real thing and they always tell me absolutely of course it's a real thing it's so hard it Sucked horribly. I, I think the one nice thing was my dad uh, in 1984 moved to uh, Norton Air Force Base in uh, San Bernardino, California. And we bought, my parents bought a place in Redlands and I went to high school. I was the only one of my, I have two older sisters and I was the only one of the three of us that went to the same high school for all three years, you know? And I mean, you think about that and that seems like, Ooh, yeah. that seems yeah, very for common. You, that's a win, man. It was awesome, yeah. you know, but uh, still I was moving to California from Missouri mm -hmm. and I, you know, and, and, so, and they're very you know, different gotta, places too. It's not like you're moving yeah. from like, it's completely different too. Now, what yeah. did you, I wonder this, did you harbor any negative feelings towards the military or anything like that? Or you didn't even care? Like, you know, does it, does it, cause I met, this is a thing that, that your fought, that sort of controlled you in a way indirectly. Does it matter to you now or no? Like you would, did you ever consider um, going into the military or no? Oh, no, I never considered no, going okay. to the military. Uh, no. That was never an option for okay. me. Uh, right. My dad was a Vietnam era veteran and uh, he did not, even though he spent his life in the military, he did not want that for me. Okay. So um, I uh, I never had intended that. I mean, okay. I, I thought I might go work for Raytheon or Northrop Grumman or some one okay. of those companies, yeah. Lockheed, like a lot of my buddies have. And I, I have a lot of friends I went to school with that they, they're making all the stuff that uh, we're using over in the Ukraine right now. Yep. That's where the money is in the military, man. That's for sure. Yep. That's where, that's where it is. Um, I want to understand a little bit about comics today. And the reason why I'm asking this question is because I feel like humans don't read anymore or read a lot less. Sorry that you got you in the drink. <laughs> I feel like humans are in an age where if they can't watch it on video or it's not scrollable, um, they're all, they're all set, right? So like comics, the, like, and I, I can this. I'm old enough to know newspapers. I remember going in the newspaper and looking at the Yankees game and the score and the box score. There was like a feel to it, right? You open it up. There's a smell. Had it on my fingers. I remember getting a new comic. I had it in the backing with the plastic. I would open it, take it out, read it, put it back. Like it was like it was it was sensorial. Like I had sensory touch. Right. I feel like I see my son. He's ten. He he reads now he gets and but it's it's digital. So how is how is the game shifted? Is it still at its core a book? And is uh, there's clearly a still a, a big niche for this. I'm just wondering how it's changed with time. 
Well, there's still a, a desire for print. Uh, typically what it is now is there's uh, a lot of people that still read. Uh, the middle-aged, <laughs> the reason why romance works so well for us is because yeah, women tend to read more mm-hmm. than men. So the prime readership of a lot of those books are women. Uh, but the science fiction and the superhero stuff is still primarily read by men. And uh, it's, it's both digital. I mean, there's Kindle. Um, there's Kindle Unlimited. Comixology is a company that does digital comics. It's owned by Amazon. And uh, that is the main audience. Um, the comic book stores are just a small percentage of our business mm-hmm. now. I mean, yeah. you go back to like 2000, it was almost 95% of our business. I think the actual comic book store right now is less than 10% of our business. I imagine so, so right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's digital. You know, we, we have a thing on Humble Bundle right now, which is a thing that we put up for charity. It's a bunch of digital comics. And, uh, you know, we've raised uh, 40-some thousand in, in just a few days. So mm. um, we use Kickstarter to crowdfund things. Okay. What happens is people, when they become a fan of something, they want something tangible. It's right. hard to get people to spend money on real things if they're not a fan of it. True. Correct. No, no one's going to go buy a $50 hardcover if they don't Correct. like it already. Correct. But if you're a fan of something and you like it a lot, people want that $50 hardcover on their shelf. And in often so cases, true. they'll go to a comic book convention and get either Mark Sylvester to do a head sketch on it or they'll get me to sign it. It's so true, man. You know, like, we, again, my kid is a good example. So he he's into these, you know, the franchises like Dogman and like Diary of a Wimpy Kid. And so like he has a Kindle and he could download it there. But he'll say to me, Dad, I want the book. He wants the book. He wants the real hard copy book. And he wants it not just to have and hold, but he wants to keep it. He wants to have it on the shelf. He wants to see all of the right. all of the volumes. And he wants to be able to look at it. And then sometimes he'll go back in and he'll take the third one out and he'll read it again. And I think you're exactly right because he's a fan and he and he yep. waits for it and he wants it. And it's, you know, he, he could read anything he wants nowadays on digital, but there are certain ones he right. really wants to, to your point. Like, but he, you have to be a fan of it. First, yeah, right? it's, it's more of a treasured item. Correct, you know. And I remember this is so cool. This maybe this maybe ages me a bit, but I remember at Mike at the store. Um, it's called BNR Baseball. Where I was at uh, Rockland County, and I used to have a box, so you could become like um, they would have if you were a, a sort of a member of this club. You had a box, and you would have certain genres of comics or certain characters, certain things that you like. And every time they, I don't know if there was a certain, I remember there was a certain day. I don't know if it was like a, like a day of the week or a certain time of the month, the new comics would come in and they put your comics in your box. So you're able to go, I would able, I would go in, I'd give him my name. He'd go into the box, he'd take out the comics and he'd hand them to me and I have these brand new comics. And it was so cool. Right. It was like, it was like, a, it was like an Amazon back in the day, right? Something gets delivered to your doorstep, except for me, it was creative. It was fun. And I looked forward to that. Right. Yeah. And I kind of pissed that I don't have that feeling anymore. Cause like, I don't do that anymore. Um, and maybe I, maybe I should use this as a point to try to get back into it. But I just remember that feeling. And I remember sitting down with a comic and it was something that was like, to describe it, like it was just whatever I was doing in my world, this gave me a chance to go somewhere else, you know? Yeah. And I don't do that much uh, much anymore. And I think maybe, you know, that's one of the one of the cool things about comics in this sort of genre is that it can take you somewhere. Is that what you like about it? Is that what you feel is like something that's different about it? Yeah, I, I love it because it does, there still is, you know, in between the panels, I mean, with a film or a television show, you're pretty much spoon fed everything. I mean, occasionally you'll have stuff that happens off camera, right. you know, but for the most part in comics, a lot of stuff happens off camera. I jump scripts 20 years. 
You know what I mean? And uh, I do that all the time. And uh, so there, there's a lot of imagination to these things. And when you read prose, or you read graphic novels and comics, there's an imagination to it that's used that I think is lost, you know? And even if you study the brainwaves, I mean, uh, it's a very passive, when you're watching film on TV, it's very passive. Very you're passive. You're kind of sitting there going, duh, zombie very and pa- out. You ne- but your when you're reading, are not, they're not spiking. It's very, very. You're not, you're not engaged. You're not, uh, it does nothing for, you know, your long-term Alzheimer's potentials uh, yep. and all these things to, you know, yep. plas- neuroplasticity of the brain. Nothing. But when you're reading a comic book or a, a book, uh, you know, your brain is active. The neurons are firing all over the place. It increases your intelligence and uh, makes you a better person. How, like, you know, like you said, you, someone took a chance on you, a physicist, a master's in physics to go into this world, right? And you had this opportunity now, clearly you love it. It's what you do, right? I imagine you, you don't see yourself doing anything else. Like this is what you really love to oh, do, right? Yeah, long time. If someone's listening to this and they're a fan and they, they're like, wow, that's cool, but I'm not, I'm not a comic person. I'm not, a, what, what is your advice to someone like that, right? What do you suggest? Like how, how does someone take that? How do they get over it? How do they take the step and go down into that world? Like, what, what, would you, what would you tell them? To be a re- reader or a creator? Just just a creator. Like someone someone that is uh, like looks at something and they're sort of, they have a fascination with it. They like it. And they could say to themselves, like you said, talk about Dungeons and Dragons. Like someone could be into something, but not feel like they could create something like that. Um, but if the opportunity was presented to them or they were explained like, or, you know, maybe they would, but a lot of people can't go there. They, they don't know how to take that step. Right. You, you did that in some regard. So what would be your advice to someone who's saying like, I, I don't think I could do that. I don't think I could take that step. Nothing ventured, nothing gained, you know? I mean, uh, the, the, right now the entry, the barrier to entry in comic books and graphic novels is lower than it's ever been. And the reason is because there's things like Line Webtoon and there's various uh, platforms online where you can just go and post up whatever you want. And uh, so if you can team up mm-hmm. with an artist or a writer or whoever you are and, and develop something and go put it out, um, you, you can try and learn by doing. And the problem is most people won't and they don't take advantage of opportunities that present themselves. Um, I honestly got lucky. You know, I, I got a lucky opportunity, but I took advantage of it. And then I fought hard and uh, honed my skills. And I've been doing this for, for 30 years, you know, and uh, you're right. I don't see me doing anything else. Um, and I really love what I do. For me, uh, my work is a joy. You know, yeah. I get up every day looking forward to what yeah. I do. Most most people don't have that luxury. No. And uh I find that sad. So I, I think if you have the desire or a dream, uh, really, there are all kinds of things that will stop you from doing that. Yes. But uh, you just can't give up. You know, I mean, you just got to keep trying and, and figure it out. I mean, for comic books specifically, the great thing about our industry is that there are these conventions everywhere. You know, you can go to a comic book convention in New York and San Diego yep. and Los Angeles. Yep. Any, any, there is a comic book convention at least once a year within a 100-mile drive of you, I almost guarantee Uh, There's even several in Alaska, you know, so if you live in Minot, North Dakota, there's one in, uh, I I went to one there not too long ago. I can't, Fargo. There's a convention in Fargo. So, I mean, (laughs) even in the most podunk places of this country, you could find a comic book convention and there will be a creator or a company there that you can go talk to. And the great thing is we also have the internet, you know, I mean, you have a podcast like this. Right. Uh, Things like, things, things, it's a little more accessible nowadays. You could find stuff. Yeah. 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 And, And the great thing about comic book creators is we are accessible. Yeah, You know, I mean, we're not like movie people where we're sort of shielded from our fans and uh, people can go on my Facebook and Twitter and talk to me. I, I respond to people. Last thing I want to ask you before we close, we're at about 35 minutes is there, you know, you've, you've written how many, how many, 
how many, what's your, like your, I don't know if it's, what's it called? Not your library. Is it your library? Like how many, how many? I've written over 600 books. 600 books. Damn. Yeah. Um, I imagine some, like you said, some are at different levels of following. Some do, you know, like anything else, right? You create something like a song, like a music. Right. Um, but I imagine there are people that follow, that like, I imagine this is like, a can be like a culture, like people really gravitate yeah. and follow. Like you said, they go to these, like, com they go to these meetings, they go to these things. What's that like, man? Like to know that you, you, you've written something or you've created something that people get dressed up or people like, you know, like, you know, I think of uh, uh, Entourage. What's his name? Oh, God. Oh, God. What was his name? Turtle? No. Um, the funny guy. Oh, God. It's going to kill me. Anyway. It's been a long time. So he, did a, uh, <laughs> he did like an old, he, he did like a, like it was kind of like a sci-fi thing. And it was like way back in the 80s. And like he always held on to it for his thing. But he would go to Comic-Con and sure enough, people would remember him and they would come dressed up like him. Like, what's that like to know you've created something that people feel that much? It must be pretty cool. It's uh, it's surreal. Um, I was involved with the character Aphrodite Nine, which is a girl with green hair and, and an IX, a nine, a Roman numeral on her cheek. And uh, yeah, women dress up as that character all the time. If you Google Aphrodite Nine cosplay, IX cosplay, you'll see hundreds of women that dress up with this character. Oh my God. And they come up and I've had some of them ask me to sign various parts of their body and I've done it. That's but, crazy. Uh, no, but it's, it's weird because uh, I think I've only been asked to autograph something twice in my entire career that wasn't in a comic book store or convention. So, you know, my kids who don't like comics and don't read them, uh, it, it, they, it weirds them out when they see me signing a couple hundred books at home and sending them off to some place that buys them because uh, I'm not famous to them. Right. You know, Chris, Hems Chris Hemsworth's famous. I'm not famous. Right. But, right. Uh, you know, you go to a comic book show and people want to take your picture with you. It's yep. kind of cool. Yeah, it's fun. I, I, I prefer it because uh, I think if if I had that twenty four seven, it would it would be it would get to me. Eventually. It's too much, right? Yeah, it'd be yeah, too much. Yeah. But it's I, I know that that would be a really cool feeling to know that something something resonates that much with someone that they want to be associated with you. They want to be able to go home and say like, I met Matt. Right. You know, like that's, that's really, really cool. Like I imagine that must like, it's like a, everyone wants a validation in some regard, right? Yeah. And that probably really feels good. Yeah. And we have a hardcore sort of niche following that, uh, that follows us around and, and does these kind of things, which, which is kind of fun. But, uh, you know, as a physics guy, um, I, I always try to sort of clandestinely entertain and educate at the same time. So I, I mean, try yeah, to I educate. Mean, yeah. You're an academic, right? Why not? Like yeah. I, that's, that's what I love. Like, it's not just random. It's uh, you have tidbits, things that you want people to take away, right? There's, there's yeah. stuff there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That goes into the research that you put in, like you said, right? You're yep. doing that research, you're putting it in, people should be able to take, take stuff out. So where, for people that aren't familiar, where do they go? Like, so they're listening to this and they're like, that sounds really cool. I want to go, I want to learn more about Top Cow. I want to learn about Matt. Where, where can they go? Easiest is just pick your pick your platform, uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, you know, Twumblr, anything. Just go to Top Cow, T-O-P-C-O-W. Uh, it was originally, I think they wanted, or Mark wanted to call it Top Dog. That was unavailable. So he went with Top Cow in a drunken frenzy and it just kind of stuck. <laughs> so we're Top Cow. Um, and we have that, you, you know, topcow.com is our URL. Uh, and if you go to any of like Twitter, or Facebook, um, it'll link to my personal feeds and Mark Silvestri's personal feeds. Uh, my name's Matt Hawkins, so you know you can just Google Matt Hawkins Top Cow, and you can find any of my social media, and you can go on there and ping me. Um, if you want to talk to either Mark or I directly, you should go to our personal feeds and not the corporate feeds. But go to the corporate feed because they link to our personal feeds. Okay. 
All right. So the easiest way to do it is go to Top Cow. I imagine you'll find. Yeah. I know that's what I did, and I got a whole bunch of information that yeah, came yeah. right up. So Top Cow, Matt. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate you taking the time. Um, and I know we've had difficulty trying to get this rescheduled and everything like that. But I appreciate no, no appreciate you sticking it out and doing this with us. It's really interesting. I was I was excited to learn to talk to you because, like again, like I said, like it's sort of coming back around with me with my kid, and maybe I'll be able to sort of relive and go back through him. That's one of the cool things about being a right. parent. You can sort of you know, go back and, uh, and, do, and, and go through that. So I appreciate it. Um, so everything we talked about, we're going to link to this in the, uh, in the show notes. So you'll be able to find top cow and, and the information for Matt there. Um, I want to thank, uh, Dave Parker, Adam Claremont over at studios for putting this on and producing everything and making, making us look good on the screen and sound good in the, in your, uh, in your headphones here. Don't forget to subscribe to the get over it podcast, Matt, man, I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No problem.